0: Please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Yesterday, I had the fortunate second seat on my airplane ride home The seat that I sat in came in Cleveland. It was a small airplane, and so the door was open for quite a while, waiting for those of us to come in. The last person came on the plane, and she said, I am so over cold weather. As I sat there, frigid, waiting for the door to be shut, I thought, so am I. (laughs) And so when I woke up this morning and saw the blanket of snow... I had to laugh. You see, the bleakness of winter, even despite the beauty of the snow, is the backdrop upon which we greet Lent the season. A time of year when we are often so ready for warmth, for energy, for new life, and for relief, and instead we find ourselves here in Lent with no assurance of when this winter weather will end. And when our winter blaws will be replaced with warmth and sunshine. And yet it is this time of year that we are encouraged to find some extra room in our lives for God and to pay attention to our spiritual life. Whether it be through daily devotions or giving up something for Lent or focusing more time on God, we find ourselves here in the season of Lent. And like Advent... Lent is a season of the church calendar for which I personally anticipate, looking forward to a new focus on faith and the uniqueness of the season. But Lent is so very different than Advent. Advent seems warm and hopeful, and we all really look forward to it, full of joy in the events that accompany it, parties and the first snowfalls of the year. Lent comes at the bleakest time of the year, when we wish there were something to distract us from this season. But unlike Advent, which, which rushes by, Lent comes and lasts and lasts, giving us time during this bleakest season of the year to focus on God. As one theologian reflecting on today's text tells us, the setting is right then, for a wilderness mindset. Not the beautiful wooded wilderness we want to preserve, but the stark, barren wilderness, the kind where the Hebrews wandered and where Jesus was tempted. And yet it is strange that this text that we find ourselves encountering on this first Sunday of Lent is that of Noah and the ark, not a wilderness scene in the Old Testament. The ark brings us images of the animals, of children's stories, and the rainbow. I see little here that reminds me of Lent. Although the story of Noah and the ark are familiar with, even, with most persons, even people who are not familiar usually with any other story in the Bible, it is discovered by researchers that most everybody knows about Noah and the ark, even if you've never stepped foot. In a, in a church. In fact, I had heard this, but I researched it to claim it was true. Almost all continents and almost all groups of people in the world have some sort of early account of a destructive worldwide flood occurring early in their respective tribal histories. Bob Deffenbaugh reports that in each case, one of the few individuals were saved. And they were charged then with repopulating the earth. To date, anthropologists have collected between 250 to 300 such flood stories in the world. So Noah's story is quite familiar to us, all of us. And perhaps, according to Deffenbaugh, the greatest obstacle then in knowing Noah's story is benefiting from studying it we come to this text with our minds made up as though we know the story really well, that there's little or nothing new that we can learn or that will change our thinking about it. For example, the story seems pretty obvious to me that the theme is about judgment and destruction. And actually, to a pretty good degree, that's true. The people of Noah's days were full of sin, moral misconduct, greed, murder, jealousy, selfishness, and more and more. But Noah, Noah was found to be righteous and blameless in God's sight. We don't know much more about Noah or what made him so blameless when the world around him was so sinful. But what we do know is a phrase that is found in chapter 6 of Genesis, verse 9, which I think tells us more about Noah than anything else. It says in verse 9, Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God is an emphasis of the fellowship between Noah and God, a fellowship that is revealed in this very simple statement It was an intimate daily union of these two. The relationship was ongoing, dependable, a constancy in each other's lives. Clearly, God and Noah were close. But beyond that, our knowledge of Noah is pretty limited. We don't know what Noah did to remain so close to God. We don't know what Noah did to remain blameless and righteous. We know that Noah walked with God. But then comes one of the mysteries of the Old Testament. How could this loving God that we want so much to claim as our own wipe out all of creation? The cardinals, the zebras, the porcupines, the peacocks, the elephants, the bumblebees, the grasshoppers, and the panda bears, let alone all human beings... Rabbi Jane Rachel Littman says in her article, "When bad things happen to bad people, almost all of us have been confronted, some equally sad, with some equally sad and painful situation in our lives, And so we ask, how can a just and all-powerful God allow so many terrible things to befall so many decent good people?" It's a common moral question known in the religious world as theodicy and it has perplexed generations of clergy and believers and probably all of us sitting here in at least one time in our lives. It's one of the most difficult challenges of faith, the terrible tragedy of innocent suffering And while Noah's story is often depicted in children's books and children's nurseries, the story is actually really one of suffering and destruction all at the hand and decision of God. And so how do we reconcile this? And I had to wonder this week, how did Noah reconcile this? Did Noah live in fearful trepidation of God for the rest of his years or did Noah suffer vehemently with a huge amount of survivor's guilt, wondering why he was the one left behind, wondering why he was so fortunate to have his life ahead of him with his family, spared amidst the atrocities that faced the rest of the world. But today's text in chapter 9 is a continuation of the story of Noah. Noah. The information that we have here is the backdrop to today's text, today's text of God's covenant with all of creation. And as Rabbi Littman reminds us, theodicy is not the subject of this week's Torah portion. It's actually quite the contrary. In the tale of Noah and the flood, the innocent are saved, the righteous redeemed. It is only the guilty and the wicked who are wiped out without a trace by the mighty flood that covers the world. If anything, this portion affirms the triumph of God's justice over chaos and immorality. And yet, Littman asks, so why does the story give me this unpleasant, queasy feeling? in the pit of my stomach does it make us uncomfortable because we know what a powerful god we have perhaps all too just who offers judgment when we do deserve it I find that my discomfort with the flood story is not so much with the Hebrews sacred narrative but with our response to it. The story relates a fearful epic of evil, punishment, and salvation. We need to see the pain, the evil, the immoral conduct that created this scene. And as Rabbi Lippmann reminds us, by ignoring the most chilling part of the story, we actually have trivialized and discounted the moral message. Contemplating the destruction of an entire civilization is indeed disturbing. And so it should be. Sometimes the beauty of Old Testament narratives is that it makes us uncomfortable. It forces us to face our contemporary secular society. It forces us to face what often our contemporary society allows us to avoid. Judgment is certainly a theme in the, the event of the flood, But thanks be to God, there is a much greater theme. And that is the theme of saving grace. When we keep reading to to the verses that Barry read for us in chapter 9, we see God's willingness to promise, to alleviate our fears. God does not alleviate our fears of sin and judgment. Those still exist. It's the very core of our life as human beings in relationship with God, but God does alleviate our fears of such a devastating sense of judgment, such as the flood where everything and everyone is wiped out, so that we can live full of faithfulness, yet aware that our understanding of sin is always possible. The words used in the Bible, and in fact in our description of the account in chapter 9, is the word of God's covenant. But actually, that is a misnomer because God's covenant is actually the definition of the word covenant means I do something in return for you doing something. But actually, a better word to describe this would be God's promise because God is really asking nothing of the people. God doesn't say, if you do this as my followers, I will then promise not to ever flood the earth again. There's no two way agreement here. Noah doesn't plead with God like, the way, like Moses does later on in a different text or the way that Job does in other Old Testament stories. Noah merely is. He is faithful, he is patient, he is walking with God. And in that, God promises, with no strings attached, to promise to never deal with the judgment of sin in this way. God, in fact, uses Noah, a blameless man and water, to point the way to a future that offers a new understanding of salvation, something that God does again in the Gospel of Mark, when we read again in just three verses of Jesus' baptism, a blameless man and water, pointing the way to a new understanding of salvation for those willing to walk with him. Our Lenten season gives us a time to wait and to reflect on God, God's judgment on sin, as well as God's willingness to offer us grace, undeserved grace for the many times that we falter. The Lenten season encourages us to walk more closely with God, as Noah did, to build the intimacy of a relationship with God that will indeed save us from the sins of the world. But Lent can feel long and barren and void of life and energy, similar, I suspect, to the many, many days that Noah felt on the ark. You see, he was on the ark much longer than 40 days and 40 nights. Noah waited through the ridicule of friends and perhaps even family as he built the ark before the flood, wondering if God would indeed act as instructed, Noah waited through the rains and the grief of the loss of all of creation, wondering if the rains would stop, and indeed stop as God had predicted. Noah waited after the rains had stopped, stopped, but before the flood had receded. The NRSV says it was more than 150 days from the day it stopped raining till it was safe to go out again. Over five more months of waiting, five more months of waiting, waiting with his family in a closed ark, waiting with animals who were all experiencing cabin feeder fever. I imagine for Noah, this waiting must have seemed like an eternity. But Noah waited because sometimes we can do nothing but wait. And Noah waited on God, Noah waited for God, and Noah waited with God. And like Noah, we wait. Sometimes we wait for the next paycheck. Sometimes we wait for the day we will finally get our driver's license. Or we wait for the school year to finally be over. Others wait for an end of this period in our lives when we feel as though the demands of small children and multiple household tasks may never end. Others wait for a relief from our pain, physical, mental, or emotional, wondering if somehow, someday, the medicine will finally work or a cure will come. Some of us wait for love from our family, from a distant spouse, or from an unknown future lover. We wait, wondering if God will indeed act. And I don't need to tell you how difficult waiting is. It tests our patience, and it tests our faith in God. John Indemarck tells us that waiting is a requirement of faith, whether in another person or in God. Having faith implies that we will not coerce the other to act. Sometimes the act of love or grace does not come all at once, immediately, like a flash in the night sky. Sometimes it unfolds like a rose opening to the sun. Your eyes do not see the movement, but if you wait... The bud becomes a bloom. Waiting on God's grace, Indermark reminds us, can be like that. God's grace doesn't always reveal itself in the timeliness that we would like. God's grace, Indermark tells us, is not tardy or recalcitrant, but simply God's good grace does not always mesh lock-stop with more rushed, Schedules like we often keep. And so faith calls upon us to wait, as Noah did. And in Noah's waiting, he sent out a dove three times. The first two times the dove returns, adding to Noah's fear and to his time of waiting. But the third time, the third time, however, the dove does not return. And we assume like Noah, that this is something to rejoice over, that the waiting is finally over, when in fact the dove's departure, never to return to the ark, is not so much a sign that the waiting is over, but rather that our faith has actually begun. Noah didn't know if the bird happened to drown somewhere in the waters or if it lost its way back to the ark and was wandering around looking for the ark, or perished some way, somehow, in some unknown way. Noah didn't consider those things, or at least he chose not to believe them. Noah put his faith in the unseen confirmation of the dove's absence. Sometimes waiting on God, waiting with God, Waiting with faith is like this. Sometimes what we wait for in life cannot always be seen from afar. And sometimes we move ahead in faith, hoping and trusting that what we wait for will be, in fact, revealed to us. John Indemarck tells us that the partner of such waiting is not uncontradicted proof, but of unswerving faith. During this Lenten season, may we walk like Noah with God. May we strive to live in righteousness, taking the time to know God better and to build more intimacy with God through the acknowledgement of our sins. And while God's sign of the rainbow in the sky reminds us of God's deep love and promise to us that the sins of the world will never be destroyed again in that same way, we still need to recognize this Lenten season, our frailty, our humanness, and our need to repent, so that when Easter morning arrives, despite the pain and the agony that we know had happened before and that Noah knew so well, we too may be best ready to fully embrace the promise of a God who offers us grace through Jesus Christ for no other reason than love. And so we wait. Amen.